Welcome to the Revenue Marketing Report powered by CaliberMind, your number one podcast for B2B marketers looking to level up their leadership skills. I'm your host, Kamala Thompson, and today I'm joined by Rand Fishkin. Rand, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Kamala. I have been in the digital marketing universe for a long time. Started a company called Moz in the SEO space, left in 2018. Uh, and started a new company, SparkToro, which is in the audience research space. Rand, thank you so much for coming back after yesterday's lively debate. I'm really excited to talk about digital advertising trends in 2024. Tell us what you see happening. Uh, Let's see. So I I think this is going to be a year where there is opportunity for some uh, for many publishers to consider moving to a an in-house model um, for sponsorship and advertising. Uh, I think this is especially going to be true of podcasts, YouTube channels, um, sort of so- sources of social influence. So popular threads accounts or, or Instagram accounts. We've already seen this right on Instagram pretty heavily, but uh, I think in B2B, there's going to be more people doing this on LinkedIn, uh, more people doing this on their, their email newsletters, which are huge in B2B and very under monetized. And I don't think a lot of these individual creators um, and smaller publications are going to be as excited about using a big network. Right. Um, whether that's whatever, um, Taboola or Outbrain or Google or, um, Amazon, if you're in, if you're in affiliate for, uh, consumer products or Apple, um, who's trying to, (laughs) trying to make their, their ad network, a a big thing, mostly by blocking, uh, default access to, (laughs) to tracking data to, for, for Google and, um, uh, meta, you know, Facebook, Instagram threads. So that that's my big theory about what's going to happen this year. I already think there's tremendous amount of opportunity for, um, brands that are willing to put in the work to go find the publications that their audience pays attention to, whether that's email newsletters or individual websites or social accounts or YouTube channels, podcasts, et cetera and go reach out direct, right? Go, yeah. go, you know, pitch yourself as a guest, pitch yourself to pitch as, yourself as a sponsor. Um, it's kind of like the old world. We were talking yesterday, right? About 20th century marketing, like the old world of you go figure out which conferences and events and magazines and publications and, you know, uh, mailers people get, and then you sponsor those, or you get into those, or you pitch yourself as a, as a speaker, as an expert, as a contributor. And, you contribute an editorial, like whatever. All of that has huge opportunity uh, in 2024. It's super underinvested in. Almost no one does it. It doesn't even really have a name. Mm-hmm. Like you might call it digital PR or um, niche advertising and sponsorship uh, or you know one-to-one outreach, but it, it doesn't have a name in marketing that people associate with it. And that those are the kinds of tactics that always have the highest ROI because you're the early adopter. Yeah, and I've seen that a lot with communities. Shout out to the RevOps Co-op. If you can find a really active one that's very niche, 
go for it. But I'm really curious to hear from you. How much do you feel this is changes in like third party cookies and that kind of thing? And how much of it is people are so fatigued from the same old tactics of getting blasted with email sequences? Hmm. So the effectiveness of email has not wavered all that much, right? If you look at sort of broad stats across the across the field, right? So um, I, I like looking at, for example, uh, MailChimp's open rates, mm -hmm. click-through rates. I like looking at uh, the HubSpot sort of average, you know, conversion rates, all that kind of stuff. And those numbers have been really consistent for like 17 years. What's weird is in B2B tech, we're seeing response rates now as low as one to 3% on cold prospecting. I'm not talking about newsletters, Yeah, but so, sales outbound is a completely different game, but that yeah, is yeah. B2B like, it's kind I of- I mean, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that ever worked. <laughs> like, wait, did that ever work? <laughs> um, right. So, you know, that's not, sorry. That's not what I'm talking about. I, yeah. I mean- uh, emails that are sent to people who signed up to get emails from you. Yeah. Yeah. Those are super effective and continue to be effective. If, if you were to tell me I only ever had one marketing channel, I would tell you, I want it to be email. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Cold email. <laughs> no, no, that, that has always made me, cr I mean, marketers used to do that back in the day when you could purchase a list and blast everybody and it didn't work then. Nope. And then we developed amnesia and gave, sales automated tools and are surprised. I digress. Um, but yeah, so do you think that this migration is kind of um, a function of third-party cookies? Or are we just getting a little bit smarter about where our buyers are or hopefully getting smarter? Uh, so I think, let's see, there's a, there's a combination of a bunch of things. So one is brought on by the, what's called the end of cheap money, mm. right? So this big sort of economic force in globally is that the the united states fed right which um until and unless donald trump is elected again that the united states uh dollar will probably be the currency that the that the world continues to rely on um i, I think if if trump wins the election it'll probably move to something else maybe the chinese yuan or um another currency but um for for now, right, the U.S. dollar is is that, and so when the Fed raises its interest rate, and you can get, for example, we we did this at SparkToro, like a tiny little example, but we took a million dollars that we had in the bank, right, from our our investors and for making money from our customers, and we just put it into a a treasury bond, mm -hmm. because we were like, gosh, we can earn like five and a half six percent on this thing. That's crazy, like. Sure, let's just let's just do that, and then you know we paid our money, we paid that money back to our investors uh, last year. But you know, kind of great thing, and tons and tons of people all around the world, and banks and investors and whatever, rather than throwing that money at venture capitalists to try and get you know big growth, um, or throw it at small businesses or those kinds of things, they are putting it into high yield savings, essentially, right? And so that. Um, that's a slowing economic force in dollars. And because of that, uh, there's this knock-on effect across all sorts of fields, which you can really see in 2023 in the publishing world. Tons of brands shutting down, tons of, you know, essentially online magazines, um, uh, you know, e-commerce brands, uh, startups, uh, you know, lots and lots of consolidation in the media world, 
right? Um, good example in the consumer space would be something like Jezebel, right? Very, very popular online publication, been going for years and years and years, and then, you know, kind of can't make it work anymore. Um, private equity firms winding down a bunch of their investments, right? Because money is no longer cheap, right? So when interest rates were close to zero, it was like, well, we got to spend in all these places to try and get growth anywhere we can. And now it's like, oh, let's just do what SparkToro did and put our money in a treasury bond. So that force, I think, is underlying a whole bunch of the change that we're seeing right now. Th Third-party cookies and, and ad blockers and all the tracking issues that we discussed yesterday. Yes, th those things are also having an effect. But I actually think that that this is a big cause. So you don't have as many opportunities and the ones that do exist are just expensive, really expensive to get, um, you know, coverage in the 10 magazines that every, or, you know, 10 publications that every B2B executive already reads. It's kind of like, God, I, I don't want to sponsor TechCrunch, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, there's just, there's just no opportunity there. And so it's the opportunity to find those niche players and sponsor them and reach your audience through them. That's gold. So let's talk about how effective Google really is. I think we alluded to it quite a bit yesterday when talking about how they're going to inflate numbers, but this used to be something my executives were pushing me to put most of my budget into because that's how you scale. Mm -hmm. um, is it? <laughs> uh, historically, there was a time, right? So you know, when I got started in, in digital marketing, which was kind of before Google even had a significant ad program, right? This is 2001. There were so few people and so, so sorry, so few buyers of Google's advertising products. And this was also true when Facebook came out. It was also true when sort of LinkedIn was on the rise. It was true when Reddit was on the rise for brief time, all, all these different platforms that Advertising was so relatively inexpensive compared to the exposure that you could get that you could indeed throw dollars at these platforms and scale rapidly. It's also the case that there's a amnesia about the attribution, right? So yeah. over the last 20 years, as the world moved to digital everything, right? Like digital businesses of all kinds took off, software as a service, as a category took off, right? And so everybody everybody was looking for products in these spaces. Everybody's looking to move off their whatever old school infrastructure toward you know new SaaS-based products, all this kind of stuff. That was the same time that their investors and their marketers were telling them to throw dollars at Google, Amazon, Apple, um, Facebook. So correlation and causation got mixed up. Right, people were like, "Oh, look at all these companies that are scaling rapidly. They're spending a ton of money on these platforms. We should spend a ton of money on those those platforms." Maybe, like you know, in some cases, probably those things added incrementality to their growth. And in some cases, you know what, Airbnb was going to take off whether they spent a hundred million dollars per quarter or fifty million or five. And like we talked about yesterday, they they proved that in twenty twenty one when they cut their advertising spend to nearly zero. And we're like, hey, we we saw 95% of the same buyers. God damn it. Why were we spending all that money? It's almost like you're saying product market fit is important along with timing. <laughs> That's a bold claim. 
Um, well, what I can't get over these days is how many websites I see that the copy is obviously generative AI, and we're we're putting a bunch of money into advertising, directing people to these websites. And I, it just it, it, cart it, the cart isn't behind in front of the horse; it's under it. Nobody's going anywhere. I don't understand. I mean, I kind of love when I see that because I just think to myself, oh. Thank you for shooting yourself in the foot. So like you've proved that you don't know how to effectively build a business on the internet. And so someone else is going to do a great job. And it, it's wonderful to have, you know, I especially love it when venture back companies do it because then, <laughs> then I'm like, oh, great. Some indie is going to eat your lunch and, you know, you're going to shut down. And we've seen, oh my God, have we seen so much shut down over the last 12 months of venture back businesses. I, the Envision one caught me by surprise. I was shocked hmm. by that one. Like you know, $2 billion company with uh, tens of millions of users and customers. And they, they were like, well, we didn't become the monopoly in the space. So we're thrown in the towel. It, yeah. I, I'm confused. I, I think it's not a bad thing that venture backed companies are being encouraged to actually pay attention to efficiency now. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of yeah. always important, but so, um, survival is great. Right. I, I mean, I ran a venture-backed business for 17 years and raised lots and lots of money, more money than I should have. I found I found that experience to be both ludicrously stressful and all the incentives worked against the business's true opportunity. And eventually, right, my 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 company was surpassed by competitors who had not raised money. <laughs> um, and it's always, you know, VCs really don't like stories like that, but. Um, it it happens more more often than you think, uh, or, or right the um, the company that bootstrapped its way to sort of what you what you called product market fit, which I think is a little bit of a misnomer, but um, I, I think it's a, f a fine shorthand. They raised money after they'd already gotten kind of all the way there, mm. and and most of that was just used to pay um, founders out right to to buy some of their shares and give them some liquidity. So anyway. The venture market, very strange space, um, weird incentives, strange structure, a lot of seesaw back and forth between should I try and be profitable and survive or should I, you know, put my foot on the gas and try and hit a home run for you? They, they like to use a lot of um, <laughs> metaphors. Uh, yep. Yeah. And a lot of people are nodding right now because they are living that life. So yeah. we're I, and my heart goes out <laughs> to you, right? Like I, I really do feel for you. The one thing I wish... I had been told as a venture CEO is that, um, or I wish I had internalized, is that you don't have to follow that path. Even if you've already raised money, you can choose to act like a profitable, slower growth, sustainable business. And then at some point decide, okay, now I think we really, we really are onto something. Let's go more aggressively invest in whatever growth or, or these ad channels or those kinds of things or in hiring, whatever you want to do, see how that goes for a couple of quarters and then dial it back if that doesn't go well, which, which is something that kind of sustainable, profitable businesses that are bootstrapped and, and privately owned do. You can behave that way even with venture money, because once you've raised the money, it, it's actually pretty hard for them to remove you as CEO. So I'd coach you CEOs, you can uh, you don't you don't have to play it quite so aggressive. You can you can play it safer. You can have a much more chill and happy life. You can have a 
happier and more uh, sustainable company. It works out pretty well. I love that. Yeah. Let's talk, if we could, for a moment about the offer we're putting at the other end of our ads. I think that's the other side of the equation that I really struggle with. What's working out there and what really isn't? Okay, this is something, I, I don't know how you feel about this, Campbell, but my sense is uh, any singular answer that you could give on this topic of, of sort of what works to convert visitors into buyers is wrong for everyone except one person, right? Yeah. For everyone except one company. There are correlated things that, you know, there are types of messaging that tends to work better than others. Um, there are some, unfortunately, last year, there were lots of businesses who uh, marketed themselves, branded themselves with AI because it was super hot. Just like a few years before that, they marketed themselves with blockchain. Just like a few years before that, they marketed themselves with mobile apps, you know, whatever the, the sort of hot thing of the time was. And uh, those things are not very connected to my customer gets more value from my product. Um, I don't know. Sometimes people would tell me they worked. I had a hard time believing it. And a lot of times people were like, gosh, that, that didn't work at all for me. Why did I do that? And it was like, because everybody else in the market was telling you to do it. Yeah. And I think oh. the thing that frustrates, I, I agree. There isn't an easy button. Sorry, folks. Oh. Um, but I think the thing that really frustrates me, if I could pick on one thing, is the request a demo. Because hmm. I think some ridiculous stat, like 63% of buyers don't feel like the seller understood their pains. Like the demos are so bad for the most part, and the products are getting so technical. Yeah. We need to start really rethinking that. All right. This is anecdotal. So mm -hmm. I, I hesitate to say it will apply to everyone, but... Um, for the first six months of SparkToro as a product, uh, anybody who reached out to us, I, I would give them a demo. And I probably did maybe 60 or 70 demos over those six months. So every week I'd have a few, right, scheduled and walk people through the product. Um, this is despite the fact that that SparkToro was a, um, a, a free to try, right, forever free account. It's a freemium um, SaaS product. And... I believe of the somewhere between 60 and 70 people that I gave demos to, two of them signed up. Um, and so we instituted a new policy, which was we don't offer demos. If you email us and you say, I would like a demo, uh, we will tell you, sorry, we're a tiny team of three. We don't do demos, but you can check out these sort of video resources. Um, that seems to be just as, if not more effective. Uh, so I, I'm not I'm not totally sure of the value of demos. I will absolutely do training for people who've already signed up, right? Like you bought an agency account, you want your agency to you know, learn more about how to use the product, get the most from it. Heck yeah, of course I'm jumping on the phone with you and walking your team through and hearing their feedback. I love that. But offering a demo to just people who reach out, I honestly think the free version of the product that you can play with yourself, if that doesn't convince you, or if it's too challenging for you to figure out, mm. either you're not a right customer or we've built a wrong product. And so my, my advice to founders and, and product folks would be 
make it so that if someone tries your product, they're like, oh, I get it. I immediately get it. This resonates with me. In terms of the, um, you know, I was, I was reflecting a little bit more on it. I do, I don't have an easy button, like you said, for the, the sort of conversion, landing page, messaging, all that kind of stuff. But I do have a, this works for almost everyone who does it. And it's a process, which is to uh, survey and interview your best customers, aggregate the language that your best customers use to describe your product, and then mimic the language your customers use to describe your product in your marketing and messaging. I love that so much and not enough people do that. Like I, I got onto every sales call I could. I was actually the sales engineer for a company a lot. And that worked out really well in a yeah. tiny startup because you get the link, you get the same conversational language. Your, your customers know what convinced them to buy and use your product and love it. If you, if you were to say, okay, you know, I'm going to get two paragraphs of sort of an endorsement from 50 customers, never mind that 20 customers, 20 of my best customers. And gosh, you know what? 16 of them all use this one phrase. Use that phrase. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's so simple and I rarely see it done. <laughs> so we, we, we changed, we used to be, um, SparkToro used to call ourselves audience intelligence. Like that, that's how we launched and marketed ourselves. And then we heard, we started hearing our best customers describe us as, oh, we use SparkToro to do audience research. And we were like, oh shit. <laughs> you know, like we're we're gonna we're gonna immediately pivot to that, throw out audience intelligence. Like we took it off the website entirely, we took it out of our marketing materials. I stopped saying it. Um, and now now we describe it the way they describe it, which seems better right <laughs> certainly performs better well that's it's amazing because instead of throwing money at ads why not do customer opportunity interviews and spend a lot of time listening to calls and really well uh you know in fairness they don't provide really pretty looking attribution reports <laughs> that you can uh, show to the CFO to get sign off for budget on. So maybe they should. Like, Actually, come on, customers. Funny story. Um, yes, we used attribution in this company, but you know what they were really excited about? A video of a customer saying how excited about the product they were. That that did it for them. It was fine. Okay. So just, just throw a few videos of people talking in front of them and it'll be fine. I, you know, I almost wonder, we have, we, we've got a lot of nice people in our customer set who've like said really nice things, uh, over email or, you know, in a survey or whatever, but I wonder if I should reach out and ask them, Hey, would you jump on the, on a recorded video call for five minutes and just say something? And then I wonder if we just clip those and put them together. Uh, whether that, I've never tried that. That'd be interesting. I think it's tough to, there's, there's two things. One's the technical thing. Like, yeah. does your customer have a high quality video camera that can record a good thing? And like, people da, da, da. care less, less about video quality than get them to use their iPhone. I really? promise you. Yeah. Like people are really finicky about audio video. They don't care about. So if they just use their iPhone, it's good enough. <laughs> um, people love it. I've done it a lot and it's worked really well. No fooling. Well, this is, this is great. I think you should leave this in, but uh, uh, yeah, let's, uh, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna give that a spin. What a what a great what a great tip. 
and it's just it's easy for them to do so yeah, there's everybody has you a write phone. a yeah and if you write a quote for them you said this thing earlier do you mind getting this on the phone and they can just read it off it's perfect dear customer would you hand your phone to your teenager and yes. have them record you yeah they'll get the lighting right like they'll make you look good <laughs> i know does your child have an account on tiktok if so <laughs> go stand in front of their ring camera <laughs> if so you should probably delete that then after you've done that <laughs> yeah. well we were going to have a separate episode about vanity metrics but we've had so fun so much fun talking about all this um let's just cover it really really quickly um let's get your thoughts on it vanity metrics should they really be called that there's this interesting thing where what has historically been called vanity metrics are things like for, you know, just rough definition, sometimes things like visits um, or, or traffic, uh, page views, right? So, oh, we produced this blog post. It received this much traffic. Well, that does that's not dollars. So that's a vanity metric. Okay, fair enough. We have this many followers on LinkedIn, or we have uh, this many people subscribe to our news, our email newsletter. Well, those are also vanity metrics because they don't lead to dollars, right? They're not um, conversions. They're not customers. They're not lifetime value. They're not, um, you know, amount of use per month per uh, customer by tier, those kinds of things. I am going to argue that in most cases, measuring those vanity metrics and seeing their growth rate, uh, if you are doing real investments in, in things like content or social media or community building or email newsletter building or subscribers to your podcast or your YouTube channel, all, all those kinds of things. If you're doing those investments on a regular basis and those channels are tied to your business, pretty nicely, right? So, you know, if um, SparkToro does does B2B software for, for marketers, you know, if we had a very popular YouTube channel about cooking, okay, right? That's a vanity channel. It's it, it, the metrics don't align. But if our YouTube channel is about audience research and, and understanding customers and uh, demographics and behaviors, it's directly relevant to the business. And I would argue that measuring and investing in the vanity metric of subscribers to that YouTube channel is very well correlated and has causality to the brand's reach, growth, and long-term success. Is it one-to-one? -one? No, absolutely not. Is it perfectly easy to show attribution? Hell no. It's, it's not an attribution uh, type of measurement, but it is a lift-based incrementality kind of measurement. And you in my opinion, absolutely can see and feel in your metrics uh, the value of having more people searching for your brand in Google every month or more people subscribing to your YouTube channel, your podcast, your email newsletter, your LinkedIn, even looking at your LinkedIn posts and saying, gosh, this one did really performed really well. We should do more things like that. Oh, this one performed poorly. I think we should do less things like that. All of these are measured with vanity metrics and all of them are more valuable, in my opinion, than trying to build a perfect attribution model. Right. And I think what I would posit is that if marketing leaders are also religiously looking at pipeline and bookings, you can start to get a sense 
for which tactics are lower funnel and can bump those things. Like, you know, when you do a really good campaign, if you're watching those two stats regularly, in addition to those, you can start to realize one, when your sales team is behind on their pipeline goal and two, what you can do to make a difference in a shorter period of time. But I think what you're speaking to, not all of it's probably going to make it into the board deck, but it's absolutely essential for marketers to just know so that they understand how's their first party data acquisition going? Because like we've been alluding to, that's kind of a, an important thing these days. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, I would go, I would go even further and say, you know, if you are incentivizing your team to hit what were, what's historically been called vanity metrics types of goals, you can actually have a lot of long-term success with that. Hmm. And your team can have quite a bit of fun with it too, right? Like it's very engaging and very rewarding for the marketing team to invest in whatever content or email newsletters or, or, uh, YouTube as a channel or podcast as a channel or LinkedIn as a channel, um, or, you know, it could be threads. It could be Reddit. If you're in, you know, sort of cryptocurrency or, um, right-wing politics, it's probably Twitter as a channel, uh, x.com as a channel. Um, like all these places, all these places give you the metrics, right? They'll tell you, oh, this post performed this well on LinkedIn. Here's the t job titles of people it reached on LinkedIn. And you could, you can, optimize your efforts around the data that you get from these vanity metrics that that for years people like myself have been telling you to ignore in favor of you know dollar based revenue based um numbers and and win that's the note we're ending on i like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah thank you it's... so much for being on the show i really appreciate it oh it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me Kamala, and uh, i hope i hope we get to do this again sometime listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to the Revenue Marketing Report. Please tell two friends, subscribe, download, whatever you can helps. And for those of you looking for more great content like this, check out calibervine.com.